The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents No Neutrality, where we have a roundtable of contributors pushing the antithesis in every area of life. From family to government, apologetics to homeschooling, being a wife and a mother, a husband, a father, single, widow, business owner or employee, you will hear commentary, essays, lectures, blogs, and battle plans on how to bring forth the Christian worldview to all of life. This essay is called A Presuppositional Strategy for Street-Level Encounters with Mormons. Read by the author Gordon Runyon. One of the big advantages to arguing presuppositionally with atheists is that the presupp apologetic does away with the endless parade of arguments over evidence. You know how this parade goes. You show the atheist that gravitational time dilation can potentially answer all his objections regarding the age of the universe, and he immediately says, Oh yeah? Well, what about the geologic column? You answer his objection about the geologic col- geological column, and of course he comes to Christ. Oops, no, that's not what happens. Now he's on about DNA similarities across the species. Men like Saitin Kate have done a good job taking the high-minded writings of presuppositional philosophers and bringing them down to street level, where everyday evangelism happens often with devastating effect. No more endless parade of so-called evidence-based objections. Now it's the atheists on the defensive demonstrating their own inability to provide any ground at all for their truth claims, as well as their incessant moralizing. As for me and my house, we think that's super cool. However, I was thinking the other day that it's not only in conversations with atheists that we encounter those kinds of unending battles as the two sides thrust, faint, and parry in dueling presentations of evidence. It happens with cults as well. I was converted to Christ in Mormon country up in Idaho. We lived a few blocks away from the temple in Idaho Falls. Local estimations of the religious commitments back then, the late 80s, had the city at about 95% LDS. When I got saved, I was immediately filled with zeal for Christ and his gospel. I spent time in what some call the cage stage, in which it might have been better for the cause of Christ to lock me up and not let me talk to anyone, until my knowledge could make some headway in catching up to my enthusiasm. So suffice it to say, I got in a lot of arguments. I picked a lot of theological fights, including on the steps of the aforementioned temple. Looking back, it occurs to me that my arguments with Mormons proceeded along the same lines as the evidentialists' arguments with an atheist. I'd quote a scripture about there being only one God. They'd wave it aside. They'd quote James saying we're not justified by faith alone. I'd explain how they were ripping that out of context. I'd quote something about God not changing in opposition to their law of of eternal progression. They'd say that probably wasn't an original text, but had been corrupted or mistranslated. 
they'd defend their idea about eternal families by pointing to a place in the Bible where it says we're all God's children. I'd show them that the text wasn't talking about Daddy God and Mommy God making spirit babies. And on and on. Oh, it was exhilarating, as sword fights tend to be, but at the end of the day, it had been all sparks and clanging with no final resolution. I'm thinking there's got to be a better way. Now, I make no claim to being the sharpest pencil in the desk, but I haven't seen anyone else do this. I'd be ecstatic if a brighter bulb on the candelabra did, in fact, do this. So here we go. I will shortly give my humble suggestion for a street-level, presuppositional, apologetic strategy against Mormonism. Now, to my mind, the place where presuppositionalism makes all its hay is on the question of authority and specifically the authority to make truth claims and have them grounded in reality. The key idea is that, apart from the existence of the God of the Bible and the inspired revelatory infallibility of that book, there is no legitimate ground for reason, logic, truth, morality, etc. Or, as I have sought to teach, if the Bible is not true, nothing else can be. As Voltaire relished to point out, if there is no God, nothing matters. There can be no actual good or evil or meaning or purpose. This concept, the impossibility of grounding even thought itself, apart from the God the Bible reveals, needs to be applied to false religions and cults. Even some fairly famous presuppositional apologists in our day nevertheless wind up arguing with members of false religions like evidentialists. My brethren, this should not be. Subsection, the authorities of the Mormons. The LDS Church has several authorities, and based upon these, the Mormons feel pretty good about making truth claims. We'll look at three. Number one, Scripture. The Mormons acknowledge four books of Scripture. There is the Book of Mormon, of course, as well as the Pearl of Great Price and Doctrines of Covenants. Doctrine and Covenants. The fourth book is the King James Bible, but the stock phrase of qualification in that regard is this. They accept the KJV Bible as Scripture insofar as it has been translated correctly. Focus on the Bible here and their qualifier how do you know which portions of the Bible have been translated correctly and which other portions have been corrupted and cannot be trusted? The LDS Church has not, to my knowledge, published a complete list of those corrupted texts, so the result is that the Mormon cannot be certain of anything that he finds in the Bible. If it happens to agree with established LDS doctrine, well, then it's likely true. If it disagrees with his church, the easy and always available escape is to believe it has not been translated correctly at this point. If it had not been corrupted, surely it would agree. Now once the Mormon admits this, you have him. How so? Because he has admitted that scripture can be written as the very revelation of God, and then over time it can become corrupted so that nothing it says can be certain or trustworthy. All that remains is to apply that to the other books of Mormon scripture. Are you certain that the pearl of great price has been translated perfectly and that it has not been at all corrupted through human handling over the last 200 years? How do you know that? 
Is it possible that in the same way as the Bible, the DNC has been corrupted? Can you have continued confidence in it when you have admitted that Scripture can be and has been corrupted over time? What about the Book of Mormon? By the way, a simple Google search can document nearly 4,000 changes to the Book of Mormon from the original edition to today's. If the Book of Mormon has been changed, and it has, you have only two options. One, it has been changed for the better. Two, it has been changed for the worse. If one is true, then it must be admitted that the Book of Mormon was subject to error, was not infallible, even in its original version. In this case, there's no way of knowing when, if ever, it will become completely, certainly true. Actually, to admit that the Book of Mormon is becoming better, closer to perfect, more and more true as it changes, is to admit that the standard of perfection and truth lies outside that book and not within it. This is the only way we can speak of something becoming closer to perfect. Perfect is something separate from it. If two above is true, then the Book of Mormon is relegated to the same status as the, as the Bible. Only true insofar as the truth has not been lost through change and corruption. It is the church itself which has approved these changes. And if these changes have moved the Book of Mormon from perfection to something less than that, doesn't that prove the corruption of the church? How is the individual Mormon supposed to have any confidence in whichever version of the Book of Mormon he holds? If he trusts the original Book of Mormon, then he cannot trust the church that has changed it and destroyed its original perfection. And if he trusts the modern Book of Mormon over the original, then he must admit it was filled with errors from the time of Joseph Smith and its origination. And what of the future? Over 3,900 changes in two centuries. How many will that be in another 50 years, 100 years, five generations? Who's to say what the Book of Mormon will actually teach in the future? Given this thought, which Mormon doctrine will you now bet your life on, not to mention your eternity? The bottom line for Mormon scripture is unavoidable. It cannot be trusted to communicate certain truth in every place or at every point. And there is no way of knowing for sure when it is in error. In other words, the LDS scripture can give the Mormon believer no grounds for certainty about any doctrine. Authority number two, the Mormon testimony. It is highly likely that when you challenge your Mormon friend on the unreliability of Mormon scripture, the answer will be something along these lines. I don't care what you say. I know the Book of Mormon is true. Joseph Smith was a true prophet of God, and my church is the only true church. This is a pretty generic form of what the Mormons refer to as giving their testimony. Anyone with experience witnessing the Mormon people can attest that the bearing of this testimony is a sign that the person to whom you are speaking has run out of arguments. It's the final fallback position. In fact, I have heard former Mormon missionaries claim that they were taught to use their testimony just like that. The fallback stance when you become baffled or confused and don't know what else to say. When all else fails, testify.
It is a source of authority for LDS believers in that it becomes the ground from which they can establish the truth of the Book of Mormon and all the rest. It's the wall you run into when you argue with them about the evidence. They get the concept of this testimony from several places in their Book of Alba, but particularly it comes from Moroni 10.4, which says, And when ye shall receive these things, I would exhort you that ye would ask God, the Eternal Father, in the name of Christ, if these things are not true. And if ye shall ask with a sincere heart, with real intent, having faith in Christ, he will manifest the truth of it unto you by the power of the Holy Ghost. This text is the basis of the famous or infamous Mormon burning in the bosom. Generally, the way it works is that the one exploring Mormon claims is encouraged to pray and ask God to show him that the Book of Mormon is true. This prayer is then answered by a spiritual experience commonly of a warming feeling in the chest. This burning in the bosom is the foundation of the individual Mormon's testimony. Functionally, it becomes the starting point for every other truth claim they will make, although many thoughtful Mormons will admit the foolishness of trusting in a physical sensation to verify absolute truth. But it is nonetheless a powerful form of Mormon authority. In the face of mountains of contrary evidence, they will say that they know their beliefs are all true because the burning in the bosom. A presuppositionalist argument against the burning in the bosom as an indicator of truth will focus on asking the question, how do you know that? I have created a few short hypothetical conversations illustrating how a Christian presuppositionalist might interact with a Mormon with regard to this testimony. The Mormon says, I have received a testimony to the truth of the Book of Mormon. The Christian says, the burning in the bosom? Yes. So you asked God if the Book of Mormon was true, and he answered you with a physical sensation in your chest? Yes. This wasn't my idea, though. It's what Moroni 10.4 commands us to do. Okay, but we were just talking about the Mormon view of Scripture, and you admitted that you can't really be certain about anything in the Book of Mormon. So what if Moroni 10.4 is one place where the enemies of God have corrupted the text? It isn't. How do you know that? Because I did what it said, and it worked like it said it would. Are you certain about that? About what? That it worked? Yes. Yes, I am certain. Do you agree that the devil and demons can create false spiritual experiences for people in order to deceive them? Yes. Since you've already admitted that you can't be certain of Moroni 10.4 or any other particular scripture, then what if you actually followed demonic advice and not a godly command? I didn't. You can't be certain of that. Yes, I can. How? You admitted that scripture can and has been changed and corrupted, and you've admitted that spiritual experiences may be counterfeit works of the devil, but you persist in using one to justify the other and then switching them when it's convenient. The feeling confirms the scripture, and the scripture justifies the feeling. Or a quicker way to the point, the Mormon says, The burning in my bosom assures me that this is all true. The Christian says, Could something other than God cause a warm sensation in your chest? 
Well, I suppose so. Do you know what a placebo is? Have you heard of the placebo effect? Sure, it's when fake medicine is used, like sugar pills, but the patient gets better anyway because he thinks he will. The Christian says, right, so people can actually feel different physically because it is suggested that they should or will. The Mormon says, that's not what's going on with my testimony. How do you know that? Because I was obeying the scripture, which told you that if you pray this way, then you'll feel this thing. Yes. So is it possible that someone could pray that prayer and then because of the power of suggestion, he could actually feel a burning in his bosom or at least convince himself that he did? Well, yes, I suppose that's possible. But you're certain that didn't happen in your case? Yes. Or even shorter. Mormon. The burning in my bosom assures me that this is all true. Christian. Could something other than God cause a warm sensation in your chest? Mormon. Sure. Christian, what's your level of certainty that this didn't happen in your case? The third source of Mormon authority, the living apostle or prophet. Another claim that tends to assure the individual Mormon that he's a member of the one true church is the one that declares that God always leaves the LDS organization with one man who has authority to speak for God. He can prophesy. He can reveal truth. He can establish and destroy doctrines. This is not difficult to establish with the knowledgeable Mormon. They see this as a strength, not something to be embarrassed about. God continues to speak through their guy. Beat that, why don't you? The rub here is twofold. For one, officially they do not claim that their prophetic guy is infallible. He's a sinner who can say or do bad things like we all can. For another, even the history of their church that they claim and accept shows that one living prophet may come along and contradict one who came before him. The Mormon admits, for instance, that Joseph Smith taught the moral uprightness of polygamous marriage as a doctrine that he received directly from God. But the modern LDS church does not endorse that practice anymore precisely because other prophets came later and called a halt to it through a direct communique from God. Similarly, the prophet Brigham Young taught some things that the church is now frankly embarrassed by, but the church doesn't continue to teach those things because, again, a new prophet can come along and change the doctrines taught by one who came before the Mormon concept on this continuing revelation is that if a new revelation conflicts with an older one, the newer one takes precedence. Since this is the case, the Mormon needs to be asked, how can you have any confidence in any particular Mormon doctrine today, knowing that a future prophet of the church might change it? The answer I have received is that Jesus will not allow the LDS church to fall into apostasy regardless of the errors of some of her leaders. And what's the response? How do you know that? Is that scripture? You know, that thing that might have been corrupted and changed by evil men? Or was that a promise you, you received through a former prophet? You know, one who can be overruled by a later one. The possession of fallible prophets who each successively have the authority to change church doctrines, sometimes by 180 degrees from what they were, can be no source of stability for truth claims. It is no bedrock of thought or reality. It is the undoing of these. 
Conclusion. To summarize here, presuppositionalists witnessing to Mormons should focus on the fact that their own authorities, operating within their own system, can give them no solid basis for believing the Mormon gospel. Their view of scripture is compromised by their insistence that the Bible has been corrupted through mistranslation and can therefore not be trusted at every point. Don't let them support their arguments with biblical texts, therefore. Ask at every instance, how sure are you that verse was translated correctly? You, on the other hand, are free to quote the Bible and should do so liberally. When they complain that you won't let them quote it, remind them that your view of the Bible is that it remains perfect, inspired, and infallible. You have no doubts about its truth, so when you use the Bible as an authority, that is consistent with your own view, but inconsistent with theirs. Their appeals to other books called Scripture should also be disqualified because they admit that Scripture can be and has been corrupted. How do you know that this other so-called scripture has not been compromised like the Bible has? How could you verify that? Their Book of Mormon has been changed nearly 4,000 times as the LDS Church itself admits. Whether the changes have been for good or ill, the fact of the changes means more changes could occur tomorrow or next year. When they appeal to their testimony, the result of a personal spiritual experience called the burning in the bosom, pin them down about the hazards involved with trusting feelings, especially in light of things like false sensory perception and the placebo effect. Make them explain how they can be certain that their feeling was spiritual and not natural, or the result of some other cause. Mental hospitals are filled with people who are utterly convinced that God has communicated with them. How does the Mormon know he doesn't belong with them? Their other source of authority is the church's one living prophet. The church admits these apostles and prophets are fallible. And history, they admit to, proves that one prophet can come along and completely overturn doctrines that used to be accepted, even mandatory, within the church. No individual Mormon, therefore, can have any confidence about what he will be obligated to believe tomorrow or years from now. I believe a strategy like this, and someone may well come up with a better one than mine, which shows the Mormon his feet, planted as they are on shifting sand, has the potential to eliminate the endless parry and thrust of dueling scripture verses, which currently seems to dominate our dialogue. I would be interested in your thoughts. Thank you for listening to this episode of No Neutrality on the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network. Don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to download your favorite audiobooks and podcasts. And if you are a Christian Reconstructionist blogger and you'd like to contribute your blogs into this audio blog format, click on the volunteer link on our website, send us an email, and let us know you'd like to join the team. May Christ be glorified and His kingdom extended from sea to sea, and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. 
We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.